Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As the coronavirus pandemic continues, we're still bringing you new shows about exhibitions and books around the United States. Like I said last week, artists and curators and historians and authors have all spent years making and doing the work we talk about on this program each week. That some of them have had the misfortune of having their exhibitions open or their books come out at a moment of international crisis is no reason to fail to recognize and to honor their work by engaging with it. So that's what we're going to do. This week, Renee Stout. She's featured in Person of Interest at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska. The exhibition examines portraiture from the late 19th century to the present, with a special emphasis on questions around self-fashioning, cultural memory, gender identity, and the performance of identity. While the Sheldon is temporarily closed due to the pandemic, the exhibition is scheduled to be on view through July 3rd. Stout has explored many of the ideas the Sheldon Show explores, particularly self-fashioning, cultural memory, and performance, throughout her more than 30-year career. Her work, which is often built from assembled found elements, but which is sometimes also made from elements made to look as if they were found, addresses identity, spirituality, migration, appropriation, and more. Her work is in the collections of museums such as the National Gallery of Art, SFMOMA, the Hirshhorn, the St. Louis Art Museum, the Detroit Institute of Arts, the Dallas Museum of Art, and dozens of others. On the second segment, National Gallery of Art curator Mary Morton joins me to discuss True to Nature, open-air painting in Europe, 1780 to 1870. But first, Renee Stout, after the break. Like many things that have defined our schedules and activities, Tuesday evenings at the Modern must reconfigure. Though disappointed by the abrupt halt to the live program, The Modern is excited to introduce a gathering and discussion alternative online. As a long-running program, Tuesday Evenings has an amazing archive to draw from, and that's exactly what The Modern intends to do. Join The Modern as usual on Tuesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Drinks and snacks are on you, but The Modern will provide thought-provoking content and lively discussion. The Modern is kicking off this new endeavor with the art critic, writer, curator, and art world icon, Lucy Lepard, who presented Undermining, in which she discussed pits and erections on April 17, 2012. Lepard's talk is as inspiring and relevant now as then. We hope to share airtime and exchange ideas with you this coming Tuesday, March 21st, at 7 p.m. Go to themodern.org, which will have a link to the YouTube stream. Countdown begins at 6.30 p.m. Terry Thornton, the Modern's Curator of Education, will introduce each presentation with a friendly and stimulating chat to follow. That's Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. on YouTube and via themodern.org. Did you know that you can explore the Hammer Museum's exhibitions and programs from the comfort of your home? Watch hundreds of videos from an extraordinary array of programs, from political forums and panels to artist talks and literary readings. Or browse the Hammer's digital archives for images, essays, and research materials related to exhibitions and collections. Visit hammer.ucla.edu for details. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Renee Stout, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Your work is rich with investigations into extensions of riffs on spirituality and how it has been practiced by people in diaspora, and especially in forced diaspora. 
what about spirituality and its relationship to migrations first caught your attention? You know, it's a really complex question. And at first, I didn't realize why I was really, uh, you know, on how many levels I was attracted to the idea of African-based spirituality. And now that I'm a more mature artist and I can really, in hindsight, you know, explain better, much better, the, you know, the reasons why I do the kind of work that I do and the things that inspire me, I realize, especially now, that my work has always been a form of reclamation in that as an African-American woman, I wanted to know what that meant. And so I look at the 60s and I see how during the civil rights movement, you know, we we decided that we needed to reclaim the, that part of ourselves that had been rejected by society, our hair. We embraced our skin color. We embraced a whole lot of things. But the one thing that seemed to remain taboo was the religion. There was still this adherence to Christianity and the fear that if you even questioned that, you know, you're going to go to hell. And so there was that fear of in, in looking in that area. And because I was never forced to go to church when I was growing up, I don't feel like I had the fear of questioning Christianity. And so when I first encountered certain objects in the Carnegie, Carnegie Museum when I was growing up as a child and later found out that they were ritualistic objects and that they had spiritual connections, and I started really looking into that. And that's when my work really started to change and became very spiritual where I investigated the spiritual more and sort of internalized those sort of spiritual beliefs. And so I feel that over time, that my work has become the resistance to the things that we faced as African Americans during our whole history in this country. My investigations have always been a kind of resistance. So as you got interested in spiritual objects or objects that had relationships with, with spirituality as a young person in, in Pittsburgh, and then um, as, you, as you moved away and had access to other material, what about the spirituality and its relationship to those objects interested you? Did you study or research faith traditions or, or faith practices, or was your interest more oriented around the objects, uh, the physical objects themselves? When I was first starting out, it was more... I was more focused on the aesthetics of the object. I liked the, you know, I was trained as a painter, and I was more focused on painting. And then at some point, I discovered... Simultaneously, it seemed, I started really looking at African art, the art of Betty Saar, and the art of Joseph Cornell. And all three of those way of working is, is using found material, assembled materials. And so aesthetically, at first, I was intrigued with them. But that spiritual aspect, the fact that I knew that they were coming from a spiritual context, it made me start to do the research. And the more I researched the the more I became interested. And so it started off just what they look like, and then later on the whole philosophy behind them started to become even more important. I mentioned that your work often examines how spirituality persisted as people migrated or were migrated from Africa to North America or Africa into the Caribbean how do you see those migrations in the material that has interested you? And then how do you try to present those migrations in your work? 
You know, it's like the way my work developed, you were saying how my work didn't directly riff off of the original things that I had seen in the museum, but it did. When I first left Pittsburgh and came to D.C., I was still kind of painting, but at the same time, I had started to venture off into assemblage. And when I discovered the Museum of, of African Art here in D.C., that's when I saw the extensive collection. You know, Pittsburgh had a few of these these ritualistic objects, but when I got to the Museum of African Art, it was like, oh, my God, there's this whole wealth of history on these things. And so I started looking more at these objects and really deciding that I was seeing all these connections. I had gone to New Orleans you know, the whole idea of voodoo and hoodoo in New Orleans and how all these things tied back to some of these things I'd been seeing in the museum, I started making all these connections. But it's so complex that there's no way I can even explain the way things unfolded. I think eventually I realized that I didn't want to just pay homage to these objects in my own work by making something that was derivative it's almost like I internalized the whole way of thinking. And then the work began to just, you know, I began to create installations that might be my fictitious root workers environment, what you might find in it. So I started creating what I feel like was a whole parallel universe based on this spirituality that I had only bits and pieces of because it's just so complex. I'm not Wyatt McGaffey who has done you know extensive research in these areas and other people. As the artist, you know, I'm just looking and interpreting and being inspired by these these things and just filtering it through my own understanding. A good example of that might be the root workers table from from 2011 which is a sculpture that puts together a lot of things you do, both a reference to found objects, but also trompe l'oeil and kind of enjoying the futzing or interstitial space between the two. Maybe give us some grounding in, in the hoodoo or magical spirituality that has interested you in your work by telling us who or what a root worker was and how you chose to present a root worker's space. You know, when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, there was this woman, I had a boyfriend that lived in Pittsburgh's Hill District, and that's, that was the neighborhood that the playwright August Wilson grew up in, and you know how rich his work is, so you know it had to be like a really interesting neighborhood, and there was a woman who I used to pass when I was going to his house, her name was Madam Ching, and it was a black woman. And so the idea that she was called Madam Ching was kind of strange because that sounds, you know, a little Asian. But she had it painted in her front window, and I never knew why yeah, that was in her window. But she just sat there because she was very old at the time, just sat on the stoop watching people walk up and down the street. And eventually I learned that she was most likely a reader or, you know, a, sort of a fortune teller, a woman who worked roots provided remedies for the neighborhood, but people were fearful of her because as time passes and people don't have those kinds of connections to people like that in the neighborhood anymore and, you know, generations move away from that, there's kind of a fearfulness of looking back at that kind of thing, whereas at some point in time she probably served her community in a different kind of way. And so that was my first exposure to someone that was, a root worker. And the more I was doing my research into African art and African ritualistic objects, 
you know, I started to make the connections between some of the things that were going on in New Orleans, some of the, the ideas of using roots to affect change, you know, as talismans to affect change, herbs as remedies. So, you know, some of these things have purposes to help people with their health and that kind of thing. So the idea that there were these people who were sort of operating under the radar became really interesting to me. And I decided that I wanted to create from like an alter ego, that I would become this personality and just act it out in every way so that I had to create these environments for this person to move through, as well as the objects that she would use in helping her community. So in, in a sense, I had created this whole parallel universe or a play or a movie or a story that was an ongoing thing in my head. And that's what several bodies of work over the years came out of that acting through that, you know, that personality or that alter ego. You've created a bunch of alter egos. Uh, Fatima Mayfield, for example, uh, you mentioned Madam Ching. And, 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 and so then you kind of act as a medium between that personality and, and the object that ends up in a gallery in a not totally dissimilar way. The way you often present magical objects in your work, say roots or herbs, as you were mentioning a moment ago, is, is also kind of mediated in a particular way. Maybe, maybe the way, maybe one way of getting to that might be my asking, uh, do you use roots and herbs in the work, in, in bottles and such? Or is Oh, sure. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then sometimes how do you, when you're not using roots and herbs but are presenting roots and herbs in the work, how are you doing that? Like, for example, you, you brought up Root Workers Work Table. And in that, that piece, when I look at that piece now, if you've seen in some museums these African objects that are, that are called minkisi, that's the plural word, or the singular one is an inkisi. And it's a carved figure, and it has nails driven in it. Have you ever seen those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, in some interesting way, I feel that the root workers' work table has become a kind of enkisi where I'm adding all of these things. It becomes the ritual object or the ritual space where the root worker transforms people's realities to make them feel better or to help them work out any adverse conditions they may be experiencing. And so what I've done in that, in that root worker's work table is to give you a glimpse into the way the root worker thinks by creating what's a fake, it's a fake blackboard. It looks like a blackboard, but it's actually a painting. She's making notations on it. She's citing specific roots that she is going to use. And on the table itself, there are actually examples of some roots and there are herbs in some of those jars. So that's how I'm actually using these things. But you sometimes make trompe l'oeil roots and herbs too, right? Like I know that for one exhibition, I actually had, I, was, I did a glass residency at the Museum of Glass in Tacoma, Washington. And I had them blow glass in the form of roots for me. But they were large. They were outside. But then I've occasionally, when you say trompe l'oeil, because I was trained as a painter, when I do painting sometimes, you know, I will paint like, for example, I've done like where I paint a piece of tape. And 
you know, when the museum is unwrapping a painting, they think that a piece of blue tape got stuck on it, and they look at it, and they think they have to pull it off, and they realize it was painted on there. That's another way I use trompe l'oeil. So there are these in-betweens in your work, such as the painting that looks like a blackboard in The Root Worker's Table, and the way you create these alter egos seems not quite the right word, but, you know, Madam Ching or, or Fatima Mayfield. And, you know, you kind of create these middle spaces between you and, and the work or the viewer and the work. Do you intend those as a metaphor or an analogy for the migration of African religions into North America or the Caribbean, or even as a metaphor for, say, the Middle Passage? Yeah, I think those alter egos are a metaphor for transition. Yeah. And I never feel, as an African-American woman, I never feel settled or at home or, you know, it's because the struggle for generations up until now, even, it's that sense that you're, there's not a sense of belonging. You're always constantly in transition. And I do feel like that space that you're talking about is the space that I feel like I'm constantly in and that I'm operating from. And it's like I I have this parallel universe. And that's my metaphor for feeling like I'm in this, but I'm not of it. And I think it's even more important now with what's going on politically for me to have that sort of alternative space or that parallel universe as a sort of metaphorical escape from this reality. I create my own reality where these authorities are not my authorities. You mentioned Betty Saar a moment ago, and nothing, nothing could delight me more than, than getting the opportunity to talk about Betty a bit. How and when did you find Saar's work, and did your interest in hoodoo and magical spirituality precede having discovered Saar's work? The, Madam Ching was something that I saw before I encountered Betty Saar's work. So, you know, wanting to understand what I was looking at came before seeing Betty's work. But I think what happened with seeing Betty's work was, okay, you figure I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1980. And I hung around Pittsburgh until 1985. But in 1984, you know, I had cousins who lived in Sacramento and L.A. And every summer I would go to visit my cousins and stay all summer long and come back home. Well, the summer of 84 the Olympics were in Los Angeles. And at that time, I saw in the L.A. Times that there was going to be a show of Betty Saar's work at the L.A. County Museum. And so I got this friend to drive me there through all that traffic and everything just to see Betty Saar's show because I'd never heard of her before. And I was fascinated when I read that article. And when I got to the the museum, and it wasn't in the main building, there was a, a strange little brick building in back of the museum, and that's where they had Betty's work. And I was just fascinated. And it was a, how do you say, when something is just like changes your whole way of thinking, right then and there. And that same summer before, well, it was like in the spring before I went there, I discovered the work of Joseph Cornell, and I found a book in a dusty old bookstore, in, you know, used bookstore in, in Pittsburgh. And when I got the little catalog on Betty's work that came with the show, I think there was a mention of Betty Saar having seen Joseph Cornell's work as well when she was younger. So it all made sense, you know, this, this whole way of using found objects. But what was different about Betty is it was the first time I had seen a show by an African-American woman in a museum. 
And so her whole aesthetic and to see her use black people in her work and, and this this hoodoo aesthetic that I had already begun to be familiar with, it just, to me, was a catalyst for it or, or something that gave me the go-ahead to explore the things that I want to explore. There are a number of things in your work that are also in, in Betty Sarr's work, things that recur over and over again, and, and I want to ask about a couple of them. One of them is your use of windows, such as in your 2013 House of, and here's where I'm going to mess up pronunciation, House of Gade, Gade? House of Gede. House of Gede. Did you take particular note of how Betty Sarr used windows, and was that instructive to you? You know, I remember one of the main things that I saw of hers was called Black Girl's Window. Famous. Yes. And I think, I'm not sure whether it's a subconscious thing or the idea that, to me, windows and doors become portals into another universe. And so that's why it's a recurring theme in my work. You know, I have several pieces that I've done where there's a window. And it's it's like even with House of Gede, you know, to me, I want, what I'm aiming is for the viewer to say, okay, here's this window. What's beyond that? You know, try to imagine the world that's beyond that window. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned doors because, of course, um, as as Betty Sarr talked about on, on this show three or four years ago, at quite literally the same moment she was making Black Girl's Window, David Hammonds, who was also living in L.A. at the time, and they didn't know each other yet, was, was using doors to access similar metaphors, including in his great piece now at the California African American Museum. We'll have a link to that conversation with Sar on on this week's show page. Another element that pops up in Sar's work a lot is hearts. And I don't mean the shape, I mean the anatomical thing. Did you take particular note of Sar's hearts or did you come to using hearts some other way? I came to using hearts in a different way. I feel that hearts are a universal thing. I think if you go anywhere in the world, you're going to find an artist who uses hearts as a metaphor or a symbol of something. And it's such a human thing. And for me, from my point of view, it's the heart that's the blood is there. It's the driving force behind the body. We talk about you feel it in your heart or when you're in love, it's about, you know, oh, it, it's your heart. You know, I think the heart is so loaded as an image and, and has so much meaning to it that it becomes sort of this iconic symbol, you know, to basically to humanity. And so I think that that's why it's a recurring thing. I think it's recognizable anywhere. There's a work of yours in the Sheldon's collection and indeed a 2015 sculpture called Legba and the Pearl Gourd. Is there a relationship between the Legba you reference in your work and Papa Legba, who is a spirit that, I'm going to butcher this, but a spirit who serves as a kind of intermediary between the spirit world and humanity? Yeah, it's the same thing. And it's issue Allegbara. And various parts of the diaspora, it's called, you know, it's called different things. And I usually use Legba because that's the way it's referred to in, in Haitian Vodou. And I just like the little, you know, the short shortened version of it. So a lot of things I, I re refer to this spirit as Legba, but Legba is the deity of the crossroads. And I'm always dealing with the, the concept of the crossroads and the, or the idea of being at a crossroads, because like I said, I feel like I'm always in transition. And I've been dealing with the crossroads a lot lately because I feel like the entire country and the world is at a crossroads. So that's a recurring theme in my 
recent work, but it's always been a theme of my work. And so the work that you're referring to at the Sheldon is about that deity of the crossroads, which is also a trickster. Let me let me back up and fill in a bit of info. In, in West African traditions, Legba is, as you mentioned, a trickster deity, often horned figure and often kind of in between the village and rural lands. So again, an, an interstitial figure. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to fill That's in. That's right. Yeah, so, and I deal with that a lot because in some cultures that have the idea or, the, the, you know, the concept of, you know, the spirit, Legba or Legba, there is no such thing as the devil. And the reason why is because basically you're your own devil. And what happens is a Legba will present you a choice. You, you're at a crossroads. You have a choice to make. And a lot of times people, you know, they know they have a choice to make. Sometimes they make a choice knowing full well it's not the thing they're supposed to be doing. So then they suffer the consequences of that, and they may go through hell over their choice that they make. Well, that, that you're your own devil in that case. You know that you made the wrong decision. Now you have to suffer the consequences. Maybe the next time you'll know better. So that's the way Legba functions. How did you discover Legba, and what made Legba a, a spirit or tradition that you wanted to reference or include in your work? Well, I definitely discovered Legba as well as other deities and spirits through my, my reading. But I think the idea that, that it became the perfect metaphor for what I felt like I was experiencing as far as always being at a crossroads, always having to make decisions to navigate through the situations that I find myself in as a woman, a single woman who's, you know, working hard to be an artist and maintain myself and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's like it's a, interesting to have to navigate this and, you know, that being at a crossroads is always coming up. So that's why it, it's a recurring theme in my work. And Legba is a, you'll see that figure in a lot of my works through several bodies of work. So in both the work on paper and the sculpture, extending from the mound, which the viewer might well read as a head, there is, there is a horn-type form extending up from the mound. It's actually a branch. It's a branch, right. But I, in my way of thinking of it, it was referencing the horn of the, of the trickster figure, which it means. Yeah, exactly. You can see it that way, definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there is hanging from that branch a, a cross, not exactly, more like a plus symbol than a Christian cross, and a key hanging from it. And then, and then those, those, they're both reflected in the work on paper. What does the, the plus sign or the cross and the, and the key symbolize? Whenever you see that sort of plus sign like cross in my work, that is directly re- referencing the crossroads, being at the crossroads. And so since I have that leg of figure there, hanging from that branch would be like a representation of what, you know, the crossroads, being at that place, whether it's an intersection where two roads meet and you have to take a direction. What direction are you going to take, you know? So that's what that represents. The key to me in my work becomes a symbol of, opening doors or stepping in to the next phase or the key to some information that I'll need. That's interesting to hear about the cross because there are a number of places across your oeuvre where it seems like sometimes you tippy-toe up to referencing Christian traditions, whether relics and reliquaries or the form of the cross, and the, but, but your work never gets there. It never, you know, it stops before the association becomes direct or, or, or possibly even a vague quotation. Are you aware and mindful of that? Or 
Yeah, I am mindful of that sometimes. I think sometimes it's subconscious and sometimes I'm very mindful of it. And I feel that it might be about, okay, when I was growing up, even though I wasn't forced to go to church by my parents who did not want to go to church, they were forced to go to church. And that's the reason why they didn't force me and my sister to go. But I, we did voluntarily go sometimes with my one grandmother who was Catholic and the other one who was Baptist, which were two very different experiences. But, you know, going to the church was an interesting experience that, you know, is in me as well. And being raised in a culture that has decided that it's a Christian culture. Of course, I'm never going to escape that. This is, you know, this is what you see in American culture. You see churches everywhere. So, of course, there's always going to be a reference to that if I'm dealing with spirituality. That creeps in. But at the same time, I'm basically trying to say that no matter what religion people have, there is a hopefully there's this quest to be spiritual beings. But I think what happens is that people get stuck in the religion instead of moving beyond the religion and saying, look, all of us are trying to get to a more spiritual place where we acknowledge that there's a higher power. But why do we have to fight it out about how that, that power looks? And so I think that, yeah, many, many spiritual symbols from all kinds of cultures creep into my work, you know, as well as from Christianity. So speaking of kind of being aware of Christian traditions and Christian forms or forms used in art about Christianity, but not jumping into a direct address of them. I'd like to ask about a work called Urzuli's Arsenal from, from 2013. First, who is Urzuli? Urzuli, basically, in West Africa, when the captives were taken through parts of the diaspora, the goddess Oshun, who is the goddess of love, beauty, and wealth, was transformed in Haiti to Ursuli. But the reason why it became Ursuli is because when the French inhabited and, you know, they were, the, the captives were trying to have their religion but not let the, the, you know, their French captors know that. So what they did is they took forms of Christianity and hid their own deities behind saints. Mary became the sort of front woman for Ursley. And Ursley is a form of Oshun. And it, she is the deity in Haiti of love, beauty, and wealth. And so I like that the idea of this goddess or deity of love, beauty, and wealth. And so, of course, I would make you know, a little shrine to her. And Ursley's arsenal has all kinds of little secrets in the bottles. If you open the little drawer, there's a little heart inside, which is her symbol. Yep, and, and this is actually the shape of a heart this time. Not That's the... actually the shape of <laughs> yeah. a heart. Right, right. Uh-huh. So the question I wanted to ask about this piece in the context of Christian forms is that this piece seems to reference the form of an altar, right down to the traditional altar form, right down to the way there are wings, literally on hinges on either on either sides of your sculpture, right down to the stuff in the little bottles you reference could even stand in. Like for reliquaries or something. Exactly. Yeah. And it strikes me as a piece in which you get about as close to Christianity as you ever get. So why were you willing to do that here? Because I like the idea of mixing those kinds of cultural references. So having spent, having spent the previous, you know, literally 25 years substantially addressing West African spirituality come West, you had gotten to the point where you were willing to 
you know, bring a third culture in or fourth. Oh, yeah. And more than that, I think, you know, like in my library, which is all over the house, books in every room, there are books on religions from all over the world and, you know, dictionary of world religions and all kinds of things like that, that I, you know, that I look through sometimes and read. And, you know, you mentioned that I'm very interested in West African religion, but also Central Africa, the, the, you know, the Menkesi come from the Congo. And so that's primarily my interest. But at the same time, I'm interested in the idea of mixing, mixing religions. Because when you look at our world right now, the worst thing people think you can do is mix religions. You know, it's like, oh, no, mine is better, mine is better. And it's so segregated in that way. And then so what I'm basically doing is metaphorically bringing it all together in, in, in a way of saying we can all play nice in this room. So in 1998, you made a work called Fetish Number 2. Oh, it was 19, uh, that was 1988. 88, I'm sorry. Um, a work called Fetish Number 2. It's a work kind of early in your transition away from a kind of a social realist painting tradition into the kind of spirituality addressing work we're talking about now. And it includes some elements we've discussed, such as the use of, or at least a reference to, a window. Maybe using that work as a way in, how is that work itself a kind of symbol? And what were some of the symbols that you, that you layered that work with? That's interesting because you had asked me before when you, you had said that I didn't riff directly off of the, the African work. That was a case of early on I did. That's the perfect example to use because that particular piece was directly inspired by seeing these Menkesi figures, these nail figures in both the Carnegie Museum and the Museum of African Art here in Washington, D.C. And in that piece, because I was so... I hate to keep using the word inspired, but it's just like so obsessed almost with what these Menkesi represented, the idea that they were vessels of power because in the cultures that they were created in, it was believed that if you created these figures that and you put them, you know, placed them in the hands of the, you know, the, the priest in the village, the, the Nganga or, you know, the spiritual leader that whenever you had a problem, somebody in, in the village or the town had a problem, they could go to this spiritual guide, and through these objects, they could communicate with the ancestors to seek their guidance. And that's what these pieces were all about. You know, they were vessels for the ancestor spirits to inhabit. So when I realized that, it's, it made me want to create my own Nkisi from my own body, and in a sense, I was trying to say, okay, ancestors, come and inhabit this and guide me. So we've talked about religion and spirituality in your work, but we haven't really touched on magic. And I don't know if it's because I'm thinking of the Betty Sar influence or not, but is the line between spirituality and magic something that interests you? Yeah, I think because in, in, in the way that I'm dealing with those things, they become the same thing. You know, the, the spiritual realm, things can happen that are magical. And so I, I, I don't make a separation between those things. Finally, you've talked in interviews over the years quite a bit about how hoodoo traditions in whatever cultural or regional tradition or, or place are, are typically quiet, kept on the down low in a certain way. They are not discussed or promoted publicly. 
why has that element of hoodoo traditions interested you and how have you addressed surfacing hoodoo traditions within your work? Well, we know why they pretty much have been like on the down low or um, kept secret because people who openly believed in a so-called Christian culture would be ostracized. So, like, for example, there was a store that I used to go to to get some of my roots called Cloverhorn that has since closed. But, you know, when I first came to D.C., you know, I found that store and I would go there and get this high John the Conqueror root and all the, you know, the famous roots. And what I noticed, and it was in a black community, there would be people who would come in and they would whisper to the woman behind the counter what they wanted. And I recognized what I was seeing because... You know, as far as these people not wanting to say things too loud, because a lot of these people who came in that store would never want their fellow churchgoers to know that they were even going into a store like that, you know, because they would feel like, you know, they're betraying their Christian culture and their Christian traditions or whatever to do so. To me, looking at that, I felt like, well, why do these traditions have to be kept quiet, you know, as if they're bad? And so in my work, I actively sought to, you know, expose them. And I think because I did that, a lot of people, especially in the African-American community, were very suspect of my work and acted like they were afraid of it, you know, because these were taboo things that people didn't want to talk about out in the open or they wanted to forget that it existed. Is there a, is there a work of yours where that you think is a particularly good example of how you're not just addressing hoodoo traditions, but doing it in a way that references their usual quietude? No, I I think mine is just so out in the open. The things that I address is just so out in the open that I don't see a reason to address the the, the quietude. I I want it out in the open. I was thinking maybe sometimes the way you use windows where where the window isn't totally translucent or the way you use drawers in the work maybe. Yeah, but that, that does represent that the thing that I'm showing out in the open, there are still secrets. You know, when you see, a, 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 you know, like House of Gede, there are some things that are presented to you, yet there are this, you know, opaque window that you really can't see into, but the implication is that there's more. Renee Stout, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Now on view at the Getty Center... Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, an exhibition of extraordinary drawings by one of the most creative and influential artists in the history of Western art. Experience the full range of his work as a painter, sculptor, and architect through studies and sketches for such celebrated projects as the Sistine Chapel ceiling and The Last Judgment. The Wall Street Journal calls the show nothing less than the perfect exhibition. Learn more about this major event at getty.edu. Welcome back. Now National Gallery of Art curator Mary Morton joins me to discuss True to Nature, open-air painting in Europe, 1780 to 1870, which is scheduled to be at the National Gallery of Art in Washington through May 3rd. The National Gallery is temporarily closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Morton co-curated True to Nature with Herr Lauten and Jane Monroe. The exhibition looks at how painting and plein air was a core practice for European artists in the late 18th and 19th centuries, and how they traveled to sites as diverse as the Roman Campania, the Swiss Alps, the Baltic coast, 
in the streets of Paris to paint outdoors. The exhibition features over 100 oil sketches made by artists such as Corot, Constable, Denis, and more. The exhibition catalog, published by Paul Holberton, is a particular delight. Amazon offers it for $39. It's a terrific way to while away these new and lonely nights. Mary Morton, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think that, especially in audio, the place to start here is with the scale of the works under examination and on view. And while the title of the exhibition gives some of this away, of course, what does that size have to do with how we think that these paintings were made? Yeah, so these pictures are, for the most part, oil sketches done outdoors. And this is the, uh, very much a, a practice that European artists are committed to in a kind of codified way by, I would say, 1800, starting, really, finishing their education in Rome. But part of that Roman education involved fanning out into the Campania, into the countryside around Rome, with portable painting kits and a couple of sheets of sturdy paper or some board, cardboard, over the course of a morning or an afternoon, spending an hour or two per sheet, according what they were seeing quickly. And this, you know, practice of producing views and taking your, your art supplies outdoors, of course, has been, had been going on for centuries. But the, the practice of taking oil paints outdoors was thought, I think, to be somewhat impractical. Uh, it's sticky and, you know, I think it'll, get all, it'll catch insects and specks of dirt and, you know, all your work will stick together when you bring it back home. But they came up with sort of techniques for making this happen. And, of course, it was felt that there are certain things that you can record outdoors that you can only do with, with oil paint, which is to say atmospheric effects, color, and light. I mean, there's only so much you can do with graphite on paper or even charcoal. I mean, you've got you've to have oil paint. And so this became a burgeoning practice. In the last decades of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, every artist that went to finish their education in Rome did this. And yeah, going out in, in teams, mostly guys, almost all guys, going out in sometimes international teams because Rome was very much a, you know, a sort of melting pot of young, ambitious artists from Copenhagen and Berlin and the UK and of course Paris, coming down and, and you know figuring out how to how to how to paint light and nature. So why was it important for painters really across the continent to? be out in nature that way? Why was it important to their practice to be outside the studio and out onto the terra firma? Well, they're, they're, these are academic painters. Of course, they're all being trained in academies in all of those European capitals. And what I like to think about, and I think it is basically true, is that they tend to be young when they come down to Italy. And it's extremely competitive to become a successful professional artist. And, you know, again, they've all been trained by professors back in the the écoles of their native cities. And now's the time to, you know, go out and light is very complicated and just practice recording natural effects of light on the landscape. And most of them probably treated treated it as a kind of practice of collecting field notes like a natural scientist might do go out and paint a tree in a, in a realistic way. You're going to bring that sheet back and you'll probably, if it was well done, take it home with you and use it a decade later, five years later, 25 years later, to inform 
a more respectable, exhibitable painting. And so, you know, if you are a professional landscape painter, you're not creating these wonderful, lively little impressionist records of what you see. You're creating very carefully composed figure uh, it'll involve figures, uh, very carefully sort of arranged compositions on a large scale. You're creating a surface in which brushstroke is invisible. You're creating something that is an illusion of uh, three-dimensional space. You're creating a sort of neoclassical historical landscape that is, is worthy of public attention. And so, you know, part of it is is taking notes outdoors of, you know, what the sky looks like, uh, what real clouds actually look like to inform later compositions, what rock face, you know, how do you paint rock or caves or a waterfall, like if you want to have a waterfall in one of your compositions back home, you'll go out and you'll you'll record, you know, what one actually looks like. But I think, you know, what really energizes the the sheets that we have chosen, and we chose from hundreds of these things in the collection here at the gallery, at the Fundación Custodia, at the Fitzwilliam Museum, and then from the collection of a, of a private collector. What I think really is thrilling about this selection is that I think these guys are also turning on in an almost sort of pantheistic way in nature. And then think again, they're learning this practice in Italy, in southern Italy, and it's warm, the air is dry, they're generally coming from northern European climes. And I have this sort of fantasy about them just sort of opening up in the in the sunshine and relaxing and really enjoying nature. Because these paintings, these little sketches are so fresh and almost euphoric. I mean, I think they're like nature poems. These guys are feeling things as they're intently, intimately looking at these various natural motifs. And I liken it to, I'm from Southern California, and I've heard many artists coming from the Northeast to Los Angeles, where I grew up. I've heard so many artists talk about what it's like as an artist to you know, come, come into the special conditions of California light and the topography. But mostly it's the light, and it's the same light that you get in Italy because it's dry, it's clear, it's sunny for the most part. Sunsets and sunrises are magic. You mentioned the relationship between artists going into the field in these years and, and science, natural science, specimen gathering and such. The years of this show, 1780 to 1870, you know, really perfectly overlap with the development of professional science, both in, in Europe and the United States. And of course, in the United States at the same time, artists are also going out into the field and making oil sketches. So before we get to specific parts of the show and some specific paintings, you note in the catalog that painters didn't intend these works for sale or for exhibition. They were a kind of bravura note-taking. So how did they used them. Were they trying out painterly ideas or compositions or viewpoints, building a notebook from which things could be migrated into studio pictures or something else entirely? So one of the great protagonists of this exhibition is this guy, Valenciennes, who really codifies the practice of outdoor painting in a treatise that he publishes in 1800 that is carried around by all artists throughout the century, actually. Camille Pizarro is still reading Valenciennes' treatise. It's over 600 pages. A lot of it is about perspective. But the last part is about landscape painting. And he's very specific about saying you have to go out and paint, you know, pebbles and you have to paint skies. And this is how you compose a sketch and spend no more than two hours. And if it's a sunrise or a sunset, only spend 30 minutes because the light's going to change 
you know, beyond what, what you're able to, to record. But Valenciennes himself was actually, he had an incredible natural history collection. He was constantly gathering specimens of rocks and crystals and little bits from nature. So I think there, there absolutely is a kind of empirical, you know, positivist scientific ethos to the practice, you know, that they're discovering things. And then, of course, natural scientists are also sketching and drawing and recording what they're seeing visually. So there's this really beautiful crossover, which I think, you know, in a sense is coming out of, you know, enlightenment philosophy and just, you know, this thrill of, you know, how do we, how do we know the world? The best way to know it is to, to go out and experience it sensorially, to use your own senses to investigate what the world consists of, particularly the natural world. You know, touch it, see it, record it, investigate it visually, you know, own it. So I, th I, th I absolutely think that's part of the impetus of this whole thing. And then we were talking about, you know, how they used these little pictures. And it's, you know, it's interesting. We were having some conversations about provenance because, of course, it's a huge issue. Whenever you do an exhibition, you kind of have to prove, you have to provide an alibi, an airtight alibi for everything that you're showing. And that's very difficult with this material, as I was explaining to our lawyers the other day, because, yeah, these were not valued, really, these little sketches would live their whole lives in the artist's studio. They wouldn't go out into exhibition. They wouldn't go out into the market. And so when these artists died, you know, they would mostly get destroyed, these sketches. Some of them would get sold at an estate sale. There are a couple of instances, for instance, with Granet from X, who gave all of, his, all of the contents of his studio to the, the Musée Granet in the south of France in X. And so we've got this whole cache of oil sketches by this guy, and we know that they're by him because of this donation. But most of them, it's a, you know, for, in terms of attribution, it's a real guessing game because so many artists are, are, are participating in this practice, you know, who, who made what, and it's really fun. We've spent a lot of time lining up, you know, for instance, four granes that are known, and then maybe this fifth sketch is also by him. How does he composed the view, but more intimately, more specifically, how did, how did he construct this image quickly? And each of these artists is coming up with their own strategies, shortcuts, really, on how to, how to pull off capturing this image in less than two hours. And so they're using their fingers, they're using their brushes in really interesting and innovative ways. They're using solvents to you know, thin paint in certain areas to allow the luminosity of the paper to do some of the work. Instead of like adding white to, to their pigment, they'll just remove some of the paint from an area that they've already filled in. I mean, there's just these wonderful creative sort of, well, shortcuts really to clamp down on, on the image that's in front of them. So, you know, I think the, the, the two main purposes of these pieces for these artists is, again, field notes, using taking notes that you're going to bring back with you and use uh, later on in objects that will be worthy for public delectation. But the other thing, which I think is also very interesting, is just practice. If you're going to be able to convey natural light in a convincing way, you know, back in Berlin when you're creating a, a commissioned landscape painting, you know, you're going to have to practice doing it. And so they're practicing capturing effects of light, they're practicing painting water in motion, they're practicing, you know, distant views and, you know, craggy rocks in the foreground, relationships, spatial relationships. It's really sort of, you know, it's a practice.
Well, let's talk about some specific pictures. I want to start with one that's in the book, but that is not in Washington, because I think it illustrates some of the things you were you were just talking about. It's a picture of Corot at his easel, painted by Eugène Decan. Decan, my French is always bad. And it kind of hovers between being a view of an artist working in nature, but also an art historical reference to that artist's work. And then has all of this handsy, fingery, playful brushiness that you were you were just discussing. Is that mixture of things in these sketches typical, unusual? Are you talking about mixture of effects? And the references not just to effects, but but you know addressing a specific art history and these little sketches. I mean, I th- the best example are, are two sketches by a guy named Andre Giroux that belong to our gallery. And I've spent quite a bit of time, we all did, all of the curators that worked on this show, with a conservator, paintings conservator named Anne Herningswald, who has spent, I think, more time than any other conservator that I, I can possibly know, you know, really studying these sketches. She spent a lot of time with the Thaw bequest up at the Morgan Library. She spent a lot of time on our pictures, and then she spent a lot of time with the Fondation Custodia sketches, taking them out of their frames, studying them with loops and flashlights, and really trying to figure out how they put these things together. And she thinks that these two images by Giroux of a forest interior are probably from the same sheet of paper. One, one of them, I think, is for, Forest Interior with a Waterfall from 1825-30, and the other one is Forest Interior with a Painter from about the same years. Yeah, and the, the, it's, they're just they're great to have together. We have them hanging right next to each other here, and they actually were bought, well, they were acquired at the same time. And it's interesting because these on these sheets of paper, the three of the edges are deckled, and one edge is cut with a knife. And that's the same with the the second sheet. And so, you know, probably he's out and he just divides this piece of paper into two. And the waterfall is the image that he's after. And it's actually incredibly beautiful and fresh. In this instance, the piece of paper has never been, well, the piece of paper has never been reattached to a a canvas or a board, which often happens with these little sketches. It's just a piece of paper floating. And the edges have pinpoints in them from where they were tacked to the board that he took outside. And he captures in that waterfall picture this beautiful evocation of literally what's sitting in front of him, which are boulders, water rushing, and then these marvelous graphic branches that come across the composition. And probably took, you know, less than an hour to put together. And then in the second sketch, he basically shows somebody doing what he's just done which is a painter, he's got the, a little portable easel balanced on his knees, and super charmingly, his dog is with him. And just like dogs do, he's sitting with his back to his master and just making sure that you know there's nothing dangerous out there. And he's totally intent on, on what he's doing, but he's immersed, this painter, in nature. He's actually quite small in the composition. So, you know, I don't, I don't think there was a whole lot of, to answer your question about the Coro, art historical awareness of what they were doing. I think they just, they were, they, everybody was doing it. It's, it's part of what you did. It was part of this very professional mode of picture making. And then the introductory essay where I wrote most of it, it's really about the art historical rediscovery of this material, which I think is fascinating. And I use Philip Conisby, who was the curator here until 2008, 
eight when he passed away. It's a small group of people that are rediscovering this material. And he's kind of at the center of it from the get-go because he does his dissertation on Claude-Joseph Vernet, who was the most important landscape painter in France in the late 18th century. And Philip, doing his dissertation on that guy, really gets deep into the contemporary discourse of landscape painting. But he also very importantly discovers that Vernet was, of course, a teacher and told artists to go out into nature with oil paints and record nature in in sketches, in quick sketches. So there's documentary evidence of this practice in place already pedagogically uh, in the late 18th century. Sadly, we don't seem to have any oil sketches by Vernet himself, and maybe that is because they've been lost. But then Philip does an exhibition on Vernet, and then he falls in with this group of English guys centered around a guy named John Gere, who was a curator, a keeper at the British Museum. And Gere is an expert in Italian drawings, and part of their game, of course, is a game of of attribution, and part of the pleasure of Italian drawings, of Renaissance Italian drawings, is freshness of capture, you know, these figural sketches done quickly. So he kind of, I think, has a, a aesthetic predisposition to fall in love with these sketches, these nature sketches. And he discovers in, I think it's 56, 1956, this little piece of paper made by a guy named Thomas Jones, who in Gears' estimation was kind of a boring Welsh landscape painter. But the sketch is so fresh and compositionally advanced and alive that he's like, wow, you know, this is extraordinary. And he buys it. He manages to get one for the British Museum, and then he starts discovering more of them. And nobody knows who uh, who is making these things, but he's finding them on the market and buying them for a couple of hundred pounds here and there. And he and his wife start to create a kind of collection, a study collection of over 80 at the end of these little sketches and hanging them in their house. And then people are coming over. And Philip was one of these people that um, it was called a kind of laboratory to, you know, just engage with these. And Philip is just, you know, discovering that this practice is much broader than he had thought it was. So in 1980, they, they all do an exhibition together at the Fitzwilliam, which is one of our partners for this show, on this oil sketch tradition. And there's just this kind of energy of discovery of, you know, mostly just really interesting work by artists that kind of were known, but whose careers were sort of boring. So, you know, they're down there in Italy, they're doing these amazing things, they go home, and I just envision them sort of going back into the tunnel of academic practice, which could be could be rather deadening. And they make things that art historians don't really pay attention to anymore. But these sketches are incredible. So people like Valenciennes, who not that many people were paying too much attention to, Thomas Jones, Michelon, Bertin, Raymond. Coro is an interesting character because he is, you know, deep into this tradition in the 1820s when he goes to Italy, and he continues to paint landscapes when he gets home to France, and he creates out of the genre of landscape, you know, a a very important genre, you know, the art history of, of, of 19th century French painting, and he basically takes the genre right up to the feet of the Impressionists who make out of landscape painting, you know, the site of the most advanced painting genre-wise in modernism, basically. And so Corot is like the, the, the great bridge character. There's a whole section of the show on sketches of water, which is fascinating for lots of reasons. Most of the sketches in the show predate by several decades For example, John Ruskin's fixation on water and how, for Ruskin, no one could paint it, and it was in in some ways the true test of a painter. 
Is there a particular painting or two here of of uh, rushing, falling, churling water that is a great example of how artists were trying to figure out how to represent it? Yeah. Well, I think t- my two favorites are probably the Morgenstern, this waterfall of the River Traun, and I don't know if you have them there, and then, of course, the Great Wave by Baron Gerard. Those two are just knockouts. There's the Bido, which is a little bit different because he, he just can't work quickly. You know, he's going he's gonna to start, and then he's going to go back at the same time the next day, and he's going to keep going for a week. He just couldn't walk away from the meticulous rendering. But the Morgenstern is spectacular. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really different representation of water than the Gerard. Yes, it is. Yeah. So Morgenstern, German, and he had to kind of hike up to this place. I've kind of looked into this place. It's this 40-foot waterfall of a tributary of the, of the Danube called the Traun. And it was, a, it was a picturesque site. I found representations of it in, in lithographs for sort of voyage uh, albums. But I just am so impressed by him, you know, the degree to which he pulls in close to this ri- river fall, waterfall. And it's it's clearly done very quickly, and you know that in part because there's this thing that starts to happen where artists, in a way, almost showing off. Once they're done with their sketch, they turn the brush around and inscribe the location and the date. So again, real note-taking, and they in- inscribe that into paint that's still wet. So you know that that sheet was done, you know, wet into wet in one sitting. And so down at the lower left, you see it says Trown Fall, and it's got, I think it's August 1826. So done very quickly and in a very lively fracture, but so carefully composed. And I find this in most of the sketches because, again, these guys are academically trained. So there's a kind of repoussoir, a sort of framing element at the left, that sort of rock face jutting out. And then the chute of water comes, you know, sort of propels out of that rock face. I love the the color, that first sort of area of color that you get of a kind of gray-green, which is the color of the underside of a waterfall. You know, and he's paying attention to that. And then he has to come up with a lot of um, notational strokes, sort of mark-making, to convey the illusion of all of this water, you know, falling down, little dashes and squiggles and scumbles. So you come in at the left, and then you sort of get caught up in this chute, and then you, as your eye moves across the sheet to the right, you recognize that there's a distance, a distant palisade with some pine trees on top that he has, again, with for the trunks, he's just scraped the paint away to make the lines of their trunks as opposed to carefully delineating with the other end of the brush. And there's sort of some mist and then patch of sky. And so from left to right, it's just super coherent as a composition, but it feels like a snapshot. You know, it feels, in, it has the freshness of something that was you know, captured informally and quickly. Mary, is it desirable for a painter, at least once in his life, to witness the eruption of a volcano? Yes. So, you know, we refer throughout the catalog and in the exhibition, we have several quotations by this guy, Valenciennes, who's really the theorist of this practice. And he very specifically says, you know, yes, young men, you know, go out, see if you can see a volcano erupting or in a a moment of activity. And happily, in the late 18th and early 19th century, Vesuvius in particular was very active. There were several eruptions in the late 18th century and I think 
six or seven or eight in the early 19th century. So it was possible to actually witness an eruption and several of these artists living in Rome or everybody always ventured down to Naples in the Bay of Naples were able to, to see it. And so we have a few sheets of you know, records note-taking of some of these guys as Vesuvius and um, Mount Etna and, and you know, Stromboli are bloating. I mean, I actually really love the distant views of the less active volcano from afar, Vesuvius from afar by Dahl and Giroux. They're so beautiful because, of course, when a volcano, a volcanic form is has this beautiful symmetry to it, this conical shape that I think is really compelling for artists because it's only witnessed from afar. You know, you're looking across the Bay of Naples and there's this beautiful geometric form and it was just, it was compelling. It also locates the sketch. I think my favorite of all of these is, again, our guy Giroux of Pompeii, and you have Vesuvius, there's just a little plume of smoke coming from the conical opening of Vesuvius in the far distance, conveyed in this beautiful sort of purple-green-gray haze, and then there's Pompeii, which is, has this kind of eerie emptiness. Human order in the foreground, wild nature in the, in the, in the foreground. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. And again, what you just said was sort of poetic. It's a poetic counterpoint, point-counterpoint. And I think there's a lot of poetry in these. There's a lot of sort of contrasts and just moments in nature that they find to be aesthetically pleasing. And they try and convey that in their sketch. So we do throw the, the genre of haiku around because these are like painterly haikus. They're done simply and quickly, but with great skill and with great education behind them. But they are. They should act quickly. They should be read in three lines. You mentioned Rome and the Roman Campagna earlier. Why were paintings of and around Rome so important or fen- fundamental to this corner of painting tradition? Artists. I mean, you could not be a respected professional artist really in Europe without spending a little bit of time in Rome. I mean, it was really the center for um, art studies, certainly, and you just had to go and steep in ancient Greek and Roman sculpture and architecture and Baroque sculpture and painting and Renaissance. I mean, that was just de rigueur for, actually, for all educated Europeans, but particularly for artists. And there was a way in which, you know, I think these guys felt that just picturing Rome, just painting a view of Rome was an act of kind of grounding you know, of uh, art historical grounding, the resonance, the ancient resonance, you know, of, of Rome as the seat of all civilization, I think is, is, is all over these, these sketches that actually picture parts of Rome. And then certainly in the, in the Campania, I mean, it's interesting because you find almost a, a, tr- a particular route that all of these artists seem to have taken and particular views that they all seem to have portrayed. And so, yeah, there's a kind of like a course that they do. And in particular, I mean, Tivoli, you know, every single one of those guys went to Tivoli and painted the waterfalls at Tivoli with the little temple of of Sybil, you know, at the top. It's like the same thing over and over again. So it's just it's just part of the part of the deal. And again, they're not so much tourist souvenirs, although I think some of these guys did start by, let's say, the 20s, 30s, 40s in the 19th century. I think they did start to make these that they, you know, they could sell them as little mementos of people's trips. But I think more than that, it's just this landscape and this city are felt to be ideal in a, in a humanist way. And so to, to paint the Sabine Hills and the valley leading up to it in the Campania was to paint 
kind of a kind of natural ideal. Um, and this dates back to, to Pusa and Claude. This is a 17th century idea, and these guys are all, I think, falling in, into that line. You know, and then just it's just extraordinarily picturesque. You've got I can't I can't emphasize enough the effect of of the light, this beautiful Italian light. It just blew them away, and what it does with your sense of space and 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 the geology of that region, this volcanic region, and these sharp mountains and these you know deep valleys and the vegetation, these beautiful greens and the myriad of greens that you could find, you know, in the spring, summer, and fall. And so you're looking out at a at a at a gorgeous landscape, and there, you know, in the middle ground is is a ruin, and that's just, you know, and it's got these sort of kind of a cube look to it. I mean, one of one of the great stars of the show is the the painting by Coro of the island of San Bartolomeo, where you know he's sitting in a boat downstream, probably anchored, and he's looking at this view, but he makes of it such a satisfying composition, almost in the classical way, where you've got, you know, a kind of cubist series of planes at the center on the island, and then these beautiful arc bridges reaching left and right, and they in turn are reflected, those those uh, round shapes are reflected in the surface of the river as it's flowing, and you get sky, and you get water, and it's just, there's so much there to hold on to, but done on a piece of paper, and definitely done quickly and therefore you know still maintaining a level of freshness and Corot I mean he just and people have been obsessed with his Italian landscapes he was in Rome in 1826 and 27 and he stays in Italy for another year and he produces these miracles and so the great art historical gift of the 1996 exhibition that Philip did with Sarah Fonts and Jeremy Strick in the light of Italy, was to discover more of these beautiful Corot Italian sketches, but also the fact that there was a context and that others were also making little miracles. And they were by people that you'd never heard of. Yeah, that that Corot is is terrific. We will have it, like I think almost all of the other paintings we've discussed on on manpodcast.com. Mary Morton, thanks so much. Sure. Such a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.